0: Welcome to The Big Idea. I'm Douglas Kerr. For this week's programme, we'll be telling ourselves ghost stories. Ji Xiaolan, who lived from 1724 to 1805, was a Qing Dynasty scholar and official, a writer and poet, and an occasional companion of the Chenlong Emperor. In the last decade of the 18th century, he compiled a number of collections of supernatural tales, which have been given the rather uninspiring English title, Random Jottings at the Cottage of Close Scrutiny. These contributions to the long-standing genre of Zigwai or stories of the strange, are tales of ghosts and fox spirits, hauntings and demons, and they were enormously popular. Though they deal with the paranormal, they can give a fascinating insight into the real everyday life of Chinese people under the Qing. And they also raise questions about the role of popular superstitions about nature, death, and the afterlife, how these beliefs differ from one society or time to another, and about the kind of enjoyment we get from stories about the inexplicable and unaccountable phenomena. Now, we will be guided into the realm of foxes and ghosts by two scholars and translators who've written books about Ji. David Pollard, formerly Professor of Chinese at the University of London and formerly Professor of Translation at the Chinese University of Hong Kong, and Leo Chan, Professor and head of the Department of Translation at Lingnan University. Okay, my first question then, David Pollard, for you. Tell us who was Ji Shaolam.
1: Well, as you, you've already said, he was born in 1724, mm-hmm. and he enjoyed all the advantages a young man could enjoy in those days. His father was an official; he had uh, risen to the uh, rank of uh, prefect before he retired. The family was um, very rich. It had extensive land holdings in Hebei province. And Ji Xiaolan, who was the son of uh, his father's third wife, uh, he had the best possible teachers, both at home and after the father moved to Peking, or Beijing, if you prefer, Mm -hmm. the best uh, scholars in the capital. So he was uh, on the road to success already and indeed he, he um, got very good uh, results in a series of examinations. Yeah, he
0: goes in for the imperial exams in yes. order to become a civil servant, basically.
1: Well, he, he he would have rather bridled at the notion of civil servants. Right. <laughs> explain that. What would he be would, a better term? He, yes, he <coughs> would. Uh, uh, he was. Uh, I think the English term "mandarin" is perfectly mandarin. suitable. A mandarin is is uh, a, a, someone of authority who um, is in charge of the lives of of uh, the people that um, he rules over or looks after, shall we say. Um, And so he was going to... uh, he was well set on the road to success by his background, basically. So he only had one real upset in in his uh, rise to great eminence, which he did do eventually. And that was because in mid-career he um, divulged the fact to a relative by marriage that this relative was going to be raided on suspicion of corruption. And for that (coughs) offense, he was um, sent to the the Chinese western frontiers. In Chinese Turkestan, it was then called now Xinjiang, and in particular to Urumqi. So he spent about nearly two years there but altogether three because the, the journal of and back was uh,
0: very time-consuming. So he, he's sent to the... banished to the provinces yes. as punishment and eventually comes back. He comes back. And he's come to the attention of the Qianlong Emperor?
1: Indeed, because there was a project waiting for the right people to manage, and that was a huge bibliographical project called the Suku Chanshu, which is... Goes under various different names according to the translator. But it's basically the idea that it should encompass everything that was of value in the Chinese history and heritage. Of
0: like an encyclopedia.
1: Yes, but a huge one, really huge. And beyond, so he was, because of he, his literary talent, which was very early recognized, he was recruited to that as one of the three chief editors. Mm-hmm. And um, he eventually became the effective the chief editor. And he also wrote the catalogue, a kind of critical catalogue, of uh, not only those books were included in, the, in, the, um, in this library, but also those which were of interest but were left out because it would be too troublesome to copy
0: them all and so on. So okay. he,
1: was, he, he became the kind of literary czar,
0: if you like. So his work his as a time. Mandarin, I, I was quite wrong to call him a civil servant. He's really a kind of an imperial scholar. Oh, yes, mm-hmm. who's, very definitely. Who's, um, looking after a, a huge scholarly yes. project. Okay, so the work that we're looking at is mm-hmm. so where his spare time. Mm-hmm. Worked, is that right? Yes. Okay, um, Leo Chan. Can you begin mm. by explaining the title? Because the the English title seems very odd. Random jottings. Yes, it?
2: <laughs> it's a literal translation of uh, the original title in Chinese. Uh, you can also uh, translate uh, the two words uh, or the two characters "bi ji" as anecdotes. Okay. So these are anecdotes that are. Uh, Ji Xiaolan, uh, wrote in his own studio called uh, The Cottage of Close Scrutiny. The the name that he gave to his studio, studio, where he sits and does his writing. Yes, so that has nothing to do with the content uh, at all. Um, Now, random jottings is a special genre in uh, China, and uh, uh, this kind of genre has uh, appeared as early as the uh, uh, second or the third century, Mm -hmm. and uh, at a time when scholars started to collect all sorts of uh, anecdotes about um, ghost hauntings, about strange events, and about uh, unexplainable supernatural phenomena. Uh, so this is a tradition that has been carried on for centuries. Okay, so this is quite important
0: to us. That he's not—it's not as if he's inventing a new mm. kind of writing. He's—he's he's writing in a in a what we call a genre, which is right. a very familiar, well-established, respectable yes. one. Yes. Mm-hmm.
2: Yes. Okay. Yes, he yes he wrote all five collections, and then they're published uh, with a total of sorry, they're published. Yes, and they were published, but um, uh, they were at first circulated among friends and uh, relatives and uh, colleagues, and these friends and colleagues and relatives would write um, comments on the margins of those uh, manuscripts that were being passed around. Uh, That was rather uh, customary in traditional China as a form of um, entertainment among uh, the scholarly elite. Uh, They circulate what they circulated what they had written to friends and got um, their input, after which they would make corrections and improve on the tales or the stories that they had written.
0: I see. This is very interesting. So, in a sense, the the, the published version is mm. something of a collaboration. Well, so, it's he writes the original text. His friends are um, making comments and saying... Mm. You, Have you thought of this? You might change that? I I,
2: I thought he might have changed uh, little things here and there Mm -hmm. but the stories were substantially his. Uh, We uh, do not have the circulated manuscripts uh, extant uh, for us to take a Mm -hmm. look at but what I was saying uh, is a very common practice among scholars in imperial times Um, In We have always, uh, we we have been able to find uh, similar commentaries on other uh, narratives, uh, like uh, The Dream of the Red Chamber. Uh, We still have the manuscript of an early version uh, with commentaries and all sorts of marginal remarks uh, placed in uh, that manuscript. Okay. Mm-hmm. Can I just, so,
1: just add, as far as that's concerned, about the circulation of manuscripts, mm-hmm. um, because the, the genre as a whole of Juguai mm-hmm. was given a, a huge boost by the popularity of Poussinring's collection, mm-hmm. Liao which was actually not printed until 1766. Yes, yes, yes. But of course, by that time, Ling the author, was <laughs> dead. Right.
0: Yes.
2: <laughs> yes. And that was not uncommon you know for these manuscripts to be circulated before yeah, so the circulate uh, publication first then they, they get published so that mm-hmm.
0: people can go to bookshops and buy a copy yes and mm-hmm. and
1: uh, i think we ought to acknowledge that it was Ning's collection the precursor in other words mm-hmm. which still is a, is great deal more popular okay. than mm-hmm. um, uh, yes. Land's, uh yes. collection i mean is is very well known, I think, to English readers in the translation that uh, Herbert Giles made more than a century ago Mm. under the title of uh, Strange Stories Mm. from a
0: Chinese studio. Okay, so there's a strong literary tradition of this kind of genre. Okay. Um, David Pollard, I mentioned the Chenlong Emperor. Yes. And here we are in the sort of kind of sort of high point of the Qing, would that be right? It was a high point. Can you tell us, just as briefly as you can, a little bit about the kind of society that flourished under the Qianlong Emperor? Right. Well,
1: it was not quite the society that the foreigners had a conception of. Um, The the 18th century was, in Europe, the age of the Enlightenment. And these um, intellectuals in Europe had been getting reports from the Jesuit fathers who were caught in China. And they had the notion that China was ruled by these mandarins who were extremely well-educated, cultivated, cultured people. And they were advising the equally civilized emperor On the throne, so things that things were supposed to be conducted very rationally and very Mm -hmm. morally Mm -hmm. in China, Mm -hmm. it wasn't quite like that, in in fact. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. And the main problem was with the bureaucracy, the mandarins that that we were talking about, because the nominal salaries of the uh, officials, both out in the sticks, that is, in the provinces, and also in the capital, were ridiculously low. And they had, they enjoyed a supplement, the so-called honesty supplement, which would enable them not to take bribes, but in fact did not succeed in that purpose. So there was a huge amount of silver of, sloshing about in China at the time mm-hmm. uh, because there was a big export uh, surplus of uh, from um, silks and whatnot and ceramics and things. And this money was going into the pockets of of uh, uh, almost all grades of officials. Um, so the, there was a huge opportunity for corruption, mm. which was taken up very
0: eagerly. In fact, mm. so it's a it's a affluent society. It was very affluent, but not necessarily a particularly honest or efficient. And uh, not one. all others a society in which, at the top of which is very splendid, very rich, strong ruler, stable, bureaucracy that may be leaking a bit, but still there it is. And then all the rest of the society underneath that. And it strikes me that in a way the text that we're dealing with here is rather like that because the author mm-hmm. is super educated, very, very highly cultured, extremely literate. And yet the material... It's less so isn't isn't it it's mm-hmm. often stories about more ordinary people and and um, yes. ordinary beliefs and yes. so on so I want to ask you mm-hmm. leo um, mm-hmm. what what are we dealing with here? a high literary text, or are mm-hmm. we dealing with something that's more like a kind of transcription of mm-hmm. folk stories and uh-huh. so on
2: well s- some scholars uh, uh, of uh, Qing literature have said that there is a literary element uh, in his stories that we must pay attention to. Although in my own uh, PhD thesis, which is uh, on this collection of stories, focuses on uh, the non-literary aspects of um, these stories, I venture to suggest that these were oral stories that were circulated among the elite of the time among scholar officials Mm -hmm. and bureaucrats. And these were stories that they told each other for fun uh, or just to kill the time after they have uh, 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 finished uh, drinking, uh, making music and uh, exchanging poetry. So I took a more uh, historical perspective when I read the stories uh, and I did not treat them as uh, pieces of uh, literature And in any case, they have not been praised for their literary value in contrast to uh, Pu Songling's collection, which uh, David just mentioned, uh, Stories from a Leisure Studio. Uh, Pu uh, is a lot more inventive um, and the stories have some psychological depth in um, in Pu's uh, collection. But in... uh, Ji Xiaolan's collection, I think we we have uh, a lot of interesting facts about real life uh, that people led in those days and what ghosts they saw, what fox spirits they encountered. And you also see in these stories uh, debates uh, between the intellectuals about whether ghosts existed or not. So I... Uh, Adopted a rather different perspective and, uh, well, some people
0: still disagree with me. All right. Let's enter into the supernatural world now. What's out there? Ghosts? Demons? Yes. An
1: underworld? Afterlife? There there could be anything out there. in, In other words, the main word is you better watch your step because you don't know what ghosts are, are surrounding you? Are, are looking on while you're doing what you think you're doing in private because you're not. <laughs> mm-hmm. And also, of course, that um, the, the uh, more determinatory—that's a new word as well—spirits uh, <laughs> are judging you. You can't—you can't get away with anything. You see, so it's, it's, a story it's, because it's all around. Is,
0: yeah, it's all around. Mm-hmm. Um, are we talking about the spirits of the dead?
1: No, uh, that, that is a very complicated thing because, you see, I think we have to establish, first of all, that in this particular collection of Ji Shao there are such a variety of contributors to it and they don't agree together on the the structure of the, of the supernatural world okay. that we're talking about. So a lot of them make assumptions that uh, one person
0: makes an assumption another person would, would never dream of making. Because he usually introduces these stories by saying, such and such a person told me this one. Yes, right. yes. Now, so they're coming from all different The places.
1: cleverer there are, they are, of course, the more inventive these stories are going to be and, and, and the less realistic they're going to be. They're, they're going to make a point. The intellectuals, the, the clever people, uh, s- simply use the, uh, the spirit world or the ghost world as an analogue for the, the real world, the like, sublunary world, mm-hmm. uh, the world that we live in, uh, to make a satirical point or criticism, something like that. Mm-hmm. So you get an element mm-hmm. of uh, wit and comedy from mm-hmm. the satire mm-hmm. in G.C.R. Land's collection that's practically absent, mm-hmm. I think, elsewhere. Yeah, cool. Is that right, Leo?
2: And uh, uh, returning to your earlier question uh, In these uh, Stories uh, We uh, We see the opinions of the elite And then the, uh, the actual Experiences of ordinary people yes. are Mixed together yeah. I wouldn't say they are transcriptions Direct transcriptions of what The uh, informants uh, origi- Originally Told mm-hmm. uh, Ji Xiaolan Not direct transcriptions but they are not completely literary either so uh, okay, a combination of... Let's have an you know, give us
0: an, an example and I'll ask you for one <laughs> David as well just, very, just okay. give us a
2: sketch of one of these stories and okay. tell us why you think yes, it's interesting. This is an interesting one that I uh, uh, remember quite easily because it's simple uh, so two scholars were debating about the existence of ghosts and anomalies and uh, So, Ji Xiaolan gave us the date, the exact date, uh, when that conversation took place and between uh, whom. So, they were arguing, and then one servant, the servant of one of these scholars, uh, interrupted and told the two of them a story, a story about his own encounter with the ghost. So, this is a a servant's story. Um, By accident, uh, he said, he trampled on the coffin of Somebody dead, and that very night he was invited to meet the king of hell uh, there to be judged. Um, the king of hell, or Yama, uh, told this servant to uh, repair the coffin and burn some paper money uh, in order to appease the ghost who was also present at uh, the underworld court. So this servant did that, uh, repaired the coffin, and then he heard the ghost chuckling. Uh, after uh, he had finished repairing the coffin, so his story was told to prove that ghosts existed. Okay, ghosts existed, and uh, the two scholars then started were well, continued with their argument. Um, the one of them still refused to believe in the existence of ghosts, and he said, "Well, of course, here you win because you have two against one. Where the two of you are defending the existence of ghosts, and that's." A very simple story, but it's interesting because it uh, shows us the uh, subterranean world. It shows us how similar, the underground world is similar, Mm. uh, how similar it is to the human world. And then there's this comic element. The ghost laughs, chuckles, right when when, uh, his coffin is repaired. And then there's also a comic element uh, uh, at the very end. Uh The two scholars uh, uh, kind of uh, drop their debate. Right, because uh, it's no use arguing. Uh, you have two against one. So the whole thing, uh, the whole story is told in the context of, you know, of, uh,
0: of merriment. Mm. Uh, David, I'm going to ask you for your example right. in a minute. But it just strikes me that, in a way, ghost stories is the wrong term for this, isn't it? Yes. Because a Western ghost story yes. is intended to make you scared. Right. And the story that you've just told isn't frightening. Mm, right. it, it's, it's amusing. Mm,
1: mm, mm. OK, <laughs> now, talking about uh, ghost stories that are supposed to make you scared, because the classic example is the ghost with his head tucked underneath his arm, he walks the bloody tower. Yeah. Now, <laughs> we have a, a parallel example here in uh, G. Outland's collection. Now, it starts off with a scholar, they're always a scholar, <laughs> mm. coming back home uh, in the evening, in the dark and uh, lighting his lamp and seeing on his desk a head, a human head. And of course, he's extremely alarmed at this. Things, well, what, what can I do, what can I do to fend off this evil influence? So the thing is that uh, he must consult the local Taoist sorcerer or wizard. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Taoist wizard comes along and said, oh yes, uh, very serious indeed, yes, you, you can't ignore this, you know, you ignore this at your peril. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what I can do for you, he says, I can lay on some uh, services, I can set up an altar, an altar in your house, and <clears throat> um, I, I know a, a lot of uh, spells to, to recite and so on, and it will cost you, you know, 100,000, hundred uh, ounces of silver for this. You know, it's quite a reasonable price mm-hmm. to pay. And um, so while they, they've they just agreed on, on a sum, as it were, when a voice is heard from a dark corner of the room saying, um, excuse me, gentlemen, um, that um, uh, I was uh, in this um, study uh, late at night, and I saw this uh, nice clean desk, and I had my head under my arm. <laughs> so I thought I'd just have, I just rested mm-hmm. in this uh, clean place. Now I have to have, I have to take this head around with me all the time <laughs> because, because I've, you know, I committed a crime in my life mm-hmm. and I was uh, mm-hmm. decapitated. But the thing is that uh, I could be recalled to life any time and i mustn't be without my head yeah. if uh, if i am recorded so so uh, he said um, i think your sorcerer has got it all wrong and uh, it's not worth 100 um, 100 ounces of silver i think you just give him a pay, invite him to a meal, and, and that would settle things so that's another issue it likes you, a comedy
0: there's a very yeah. mundane sort of a practical spirit to, mm, to mm, both mm, of these stories, actually. Mm, mm, mm. I don't want to stop without talking about fox spirits. Uh-huh. Why, what is it about foxes, Leo Chan? Why, why they, do the Chinese think foxes are so supernatural? Yeah, uh,
2: the Chinese as well as the Japanese mm-hmm. are very prejudiced against foxes. <laughs> but mostly foxes cause trouble. And uh, mostly it's the female foxes Mm. that cause trouble. Mm. They are usually said in Chinese folklore to be licentious. The Chinese explanation is that they want to become transformed into human beings Mm. and they need the uh, sexual energy uh, that comes uh, from males. And so that is why they seduce men and they uh, marry, in some cases they marry uh, men and and live together uh, with their human husbands.
1: I think mm. the, the the different roles are reflected in terminology in in English. That uh, there's a verb to fox yes. is to deceive or, yeah. or yes. um, somehow to outwit mm-hmm. uh, somebody. Whereas the um, on the feminine side, um, there apparently I, um, there is in in. Um, American colloquial English, the sense of um, okay. fox in, yes. in the female side yeah. as a, a sexually alluring person. So that corresponds actually to it the roles <laughs> that the, uh, the male mm. fox is given and mm. the female fox is given. But of course the female fox is, is, uh, has, had got a very good press, as it were, uh, from uh, Pu Songling. I mean, the, mm. they often made ideal... Uh, partners mm. of course you know they, they had to be beautiful you I don't <laughs> think we've ever heard of a, an ugly female <laughs> fox fairy okay le-
0: let's let's leave leave the foxes to one side I have a last question for you David Pollard. it's about your your book of translations oh. of tea uh, you called it real life in China at the yes. height of empire and is that um, word real It seems to me rather a provocative one. Why did you call it that? Well, I think it It was vaguely meant to be provocative
1: Mm -hmm. in in the sense that it was a... um, uh, It sounded rather more um, enticing or attractive than than any any lesser title. But, I mean, it was at the same time a serious proposal in that um, a lot of... The life that we are given to see through these stories is a, a life that you would not have any, any other access to. There's uh, this story where in this household a gold bracelet of, of a mistress goes missing and the, the, um, the maid is suspected of having taken it and she is subject to torture and she confesses that she sold it to a drummer now, the, the wife would so-called le- lean on a door and sell her smiles, mm-hmm. as the expression goes, as the, the, ma- the man would go round the streets uh, with a little drum and a shoulder pole with baskets, and he would buy all sorts of trinkets mm-hmm. uh, that have been stolen by children or servants or whatever. So th- there you are. That is an example mm-hmm. of an aspect of real life in the city that you wouldn't get elsewhere. Very good. Okay, we have used up our time now. Thank you very much, Leo mm-hmm. Chan, David Pollard,
0: and thank you for listening.